Hello out there. This is one of the original Dark Topic offerings that hasn't... Well, it was initially released to the public, but now it's available for everybody to listen to. It's been living on Patreon and different iterations where I update it and such over time. But this is the original. I believe it's number six and seven from the original Dark Topic catalog. I started Dark Topic in 2016. I went away from it, and I think it was 2019, canceled it, and started up on a new feed in 2000 and maybe 2021. And um, people have been asking about this. Longtime listeners of Dark Topic, listeners of Dark Topic, remember this as their quote, favorite, end quote. And I gotta say that it's also my quote, uh, favorite, end quote. And uh, I hope that you find it compelling. Eyes cocked, doors locked, stay paranoid. I'll be back with brand new content real soon. If you want all brand new content all the time, head over to patreon.com slash darktopic or sign up on Apple Plus. Thank you. Can we talk something else? Can, can we talk about something else? <laughs> Dennis Rader was laid off. His position at the Cessna manufacturing plant had become dispensable due to the oil embargo crisis and subsequent nosedive in aircraft sales. It was late 1973, and Dennis was in his early 30s, a couple years into marriage, depressed, restless, and with time on his hands. He turned inward and drew upon the dark fantasies that had always danced around the edge of his thoughts and came into play whenever he was sexual with himself, which was a lot. The fantasies came forward eagerly, and soon they morphed into a raging beast, an insatiable monster, a minotaur. He would later refer to the seed that spread of this monster as Factor X, something he eventually was able to control to agree by what he thought of as cubing. But this isn't about Dennis Rader. This is about what he did to four members of the Otero family soon after he embraced the darkness. As Dennis began to turn, so did the year, and like his heart... January of 1974 was an icy one in Wichita, Kansas. He started dropping off and picking up his wife at the hospital where she worked to ensure her safety, but mainly he wanted an excuse to aimlessly cruise the streets of his home state. Trolling. Spotting women. Allowing himself to fantasize as to what it would be like to possess said women. He took to stalking certain areas of which he spotted an interesting female and began toying with the idea of what it would be like and what it would take to manifest such fantasies into reality. Dennis loved planning. He loved projects. The clouds of depression had parted and given way to a vicious wind that would elate and thrall and sustain Dennis Rader for the better part of his adult life. On one of these trolling excursions, Dennis came across a small white house that appeared to have a new family living in it. It was a corner house which bode well for escape routes and entrance routes, the mother and daughter caught his eye. He loved Hispanic women. He'd been fascinated with them since his youth when he'd obsessed over Annette Funicello, 
a member of the original Mickey Mouse Club, who he'd written dark fantasy stories about back in grade school. Yeah, this monster was a long time in the making, and when he finally came of age, the results would shock the world. Joe Otero was born in Puerto Rico, but landed in mainland America as a boy and grew up in New York City's Spanish Harlem. Viva Carlos Santana. <laughs> you know that song? He was a tough kid, though fun-loving and motivated. Boxing was a major passion, something he was quite good at, winning championships in his time. He met Julie in the neighborhood. Julie was a striking young woman, popular and full of love and life. A prize. She'd come over from Puerto Rico as well, and the two dated for a couple of years before marrying. Nine months later, they had their first child, Charlie. Charlie would later describe his mother as an angel. Joe entered the Air Force as soon as he was eligible and enjoyed a 20-year career during which he traveled a bunch, picking up exotic recipes everywhere he went and becoming quite the cook as a result. Julie held things down at home with a growing family. She enjoyed judo eventually becoming a brown belt, which is just before black, I believe, and encouraged her five children to go to classes as well. She was devoted to her family, didn't drink, was a devout Catholic, and just wanted the best for everyone. Joe retired from the military in his mid-30s and decided to lay down roots in Wichita, Kansas, the air capital of the world, with companies like Cessna, Beechcraft, and Stearman all choosing to build plants there. It was a hub of aircraft manufacturing, and Joe Otero easily found work as a mechanic and flight instructor. The family took up residence at 803 North Edgemoor, a little white house on a corner lot. I have a little white house on a corner lot, <laughs> as do the Filipino family across the street from me, who have been serving as a ghost of the Oteros from my imagination over the past month. The Philippines is actually named after Philip II of Spain. The Spanish colonized Latin America and the Philippines, so I guess I can justify the comparison. Definitely not a case of a white guy melding cultures willy-nilly. I'm trying real hard not to make this comparison uh, with between the Oteros and, the, and my friends across the street, but it's, it's been happening. I feel a deep concern when I glance at their place and wave to the father as we play on our respective lawns with our kids on weekends. I have this urge to walk over and warn them. It's fucking eerie. It's like really, really goddamn disturbing. The, the mom made us some spring rolls that I'm considering offering her cash to make again. A quick pan fry, a little soy dip, and kabloom. I had the all-time greatest snack of my life. This family across from me I can hear right now laughing. Maybe you can too. I've been, I've been giving this microphone too much credit for picking things up with a train and everything else. But you can hear them. They're out back right now playing. Hmm. The dad uh, built a playset recently. I, I sit in my room and write while he's clanging and banging over there. We're going to buy a prefab playhouse slash studio tomorrow. Going to park it in the yard. Take that, Richard. <laughs> is that your real name? I don't think it is. He told me his name's Richard. There's no way, man. You're born in the Philippines. <laughs> you barely speak English. He's a great dude. I mean, I'm not saying he's a sh piece of shit because he can't speak English, right? <laughs> Wait, tell me his name is Richard? 
I don't know, man. I, I, I even said to him, like, no, what's your real name? He said, no, it's Richard. Richard. Uh, all right, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Letter Dick. All right, so anyways, it's necessary to mention that it was a corner lot that BTK sought out, that the Otero family's lived in a corner lot because this fact played into the reasoning for Raider to attack this particular household. A corner lot has a lot more um, exit points. Like, I already fucking said that. And it's a little more private and accessible. The Oteros cozied into this home and began their new life in Wichita. Small homes are just fine if you have love. And the Oteros had that in full stock. On the morning of January 15th, 1974, after the three oldest kids had left for school, Julie Otero worked alongside her youngest children, together making sandwiches for school in the kitchen. Joe was still home though he typically would have been gone for work by this time. It's unclear why he hadn't left yet. Maybe he'd taken time off to heal from a rib injury he'd suffered in a car accident. The crime scene would later offer that he sat at the kitchen table eating pears from a can. That's a good choice. I'd do that too, man. Pears from a can? I eat pears from a can? Uh, peaches from a can? Beets from a can? Rinch your beets, though. Too much sodium. He maybe conversed with his kids as he as he ate these pears. Josephina, or Josie, as she was affectionately known, was described as shy, sensitive, easygoing. She wrote poetry and loved art. Of all the kids, Josie was seen as the top student, which was a proud distinction within the Otero clan. She, she was in sixth grade and was turning into a beautiful young woman. She wore glasses and in photos comes off as everything I just uh, fumbled over describing. She looked sweet, cute, shy, bright. Josie was very close to her older sister, Carmen. She'd finished making her sandwich as evidenced later and perhaps laughed as the youngest Joseph Jr. was asked by his father to take out the trash. Nine-year-old Joey was a popular kid in his fourth grade class. He was a yellow belt as well and excelling in judo. A quick kid both in mind and in athletics. The school photos of Joseph Jr. show a bright-eyed, smiling kid, clearly full of spirit and light. On Joseph's fifth birthday, he'd been given a German shepherd that the family had named Lucky. Jr. was all dressed for school that morning, dragons all over his shirt, brown pants, all-dressed kid sharp. He was working on his sandwich, when he was tasked to do the garbage chore, he uh, pushed Lucky back as he pulled the back door open and unwittingly allowed entrance to a monster. Raider had hopped the Otero's back fence and crept to the back door. He'd noticed paw prints in the snow and began to doubt his entire plan immediately. He was wearing an Air Force parka, packed with items such as cord, tape, and a gun. This was a green BTK. In future projects, he'd always carry a hit kit, which was easier to keep track of. Raider was seven years younger than Joe Otero Sr. and had served in the Air Force as well. The two had never met, and Raider had planned on that continuing to be the case following this event. He cut the phone line with a knife and waited 
in about four inches of fresh snow to see if he'd actually go through with what he'd fantasized about. His information gathering had led him to believe that Julie and the two kids would be the only ones in the house at this time, approximately 7.45 a.m. But now that he saw how shit his intel was with the discovery of a dog being part of the picture, Raider began to waffle a bit, but something inside of him was overriding his impulse to bail out, egging him on like a heavy-handed coach. Suddenly, the back door opened. Raider didn't hesitate. He drew his gun and pushed Junior, the bag of garbage and his dog back into the house. The beast rose to the surface. Lucky barked like crazy as Raider tried to get his bearings. Immediately, he had lost control. Everyone was panicking at the sight of the armed intruder. Joe Sr. was home, which was totally unexpected. Raider reassessed and immediately began breaking down the situation. Joe Sr. offered to put the dog outside as Raider begrudgingly agreed and not thrilled with giving up any power of the situation, eyeballed the shit out of Joe as he did so. Raider began to explain that he was on the run from authorities as Joe came back from the door. He only wanted some money and a vehicle. He promised that no one would be hurt if they all complied. But he had to tie them up to ensure he can get safely around the house and, and obtain what he needed without putting himself at risk of being attacked and disarmed. Raider thought of this as a Russ. He meant ruse. But the man who's about to become BTK wasn't a wordsmith. Some tried to pin him as stupid for this. But Raider, in my opinion, was far from stupid. I, I think he was more stubborn than stupid. And once he understood something to be a certain way, as long as it worked for him, it stuck. Raider orders the terrified Otero family into the master bedroom and has them all lay on their stomachs, on the bed with their hands behind their backs. The kids are crying, but not outright. They're trying to be brave, like their parents. But they're, they're just kids. The parents are telling Raider to take whatever he wants. They won't move. No problem. Raider tells Joe Sr. to get on the floor. Once he does, Raider takes to thoroughly taping the biggest threat's wrist behind his back. Then moves on to Julie, the second largest threat. He wraps tape around her wrists and ankles. That brown belt, now of no use. Raider then pulled some cotton twine out and wraps both of the now sobbing kids hands and ankles. He uses what's left of it to doubly tie up Joe Sr. After apparently helping Joe get more comfortable due to his accident by putting a blanket or coat on him, Raider ties Joe Otero Sr.'s legs to the bedpost. The family now secured to Raider's satisfaction. He tears strips of pillow casing and applies gags to each of the Oteros. He then pulls out a bag and puts it over a now thrashing Joe Sr.'s head. He gets what's going on here now with all this shit. Raider pops the bag over his face and ties it tight with, him, with a cord around his neck. He then hops onto the bed, and as the bed jerks from Joe Sr.'s death throes, Raider begins manually strangling Julie, the mother, as her daughter looks on in horror beside her. Joe Jr. cries out from the bedside. Everyone's fucking hogtied. When BTK believes that Julie is dead, he heads back over to Joe, who can be heard breathing. 
He's rubbed a hole in the bag and bitten through it. BTK wraps a cloth around the man's face, reapplies the bag, and ties it again. Joe Sr. is doomed, as is his family. I'm going to step away real quick here and say that this scene is only able to be described from Raiders Journal interviews and testimony in court and only backed up by what was the eventual crime scene. I did my best. There are some quotes here that I won't fucking touch. They come from Raider and I won't let him put words in the family's mouth to touch up his fantasy. It's bad enough that I have to explain his version of events. It's all we have. Joe Sr. took post-mortem heat for allowing himself to be tied up. But guess fucking what? You would have done the same thing. I would have done the same thing. A lot of heroes out there think they could look a gun in the eye and just start swinging, get shot dead in an instant, and leave the intruder to murder your family too because they witnessed it. Come on, man. Raider didn't have a mask on. If I was Joe Otero, I would deduce that this guy really was on the fly. He had just hopped into the house to rob a little, and he'd be gone quicker than he came. It seemed like it was very spur of the moment. I only know not to ever let anyone tie me up because of what happened to Joe Otero. BTK was an anomaly of anomalies. I don't even think BTK knew he had it in him until he started letting the Minotaur loose. He was probably surprised by his own depravity. How the hell could Joe Otero read a man who wasn't yet written? He couldn't. Joe Otero Sr. made made the right decision based on what he was presented with. How many fucking BTKs have you heard of? One. I would bet that like 90% of families in the exact same situation have survived by making the same choice as Joe and Julie made, but they're but they're stupid. They're naive. Championship boxer and brown belt judo mom. Melted. Should have seen it coming. I never let someone tie my hands up. Fuck you. I'll make you tie your hands up with a butter knife. Anyways, fucking BTK. This story is frustrating. I mean, I've read three books and countless web pages, and still I can't get a clear chronology of, of events. Maybe we should just end it here. It's infuriating to have to glean what really happened from the only survivor's account. Especially when the only survivor is the psychopath who caused the whole thing and has a vested interest in making the story suit his interpretation. If I went based on his courtroom confession, you'd think Dennis was just a guy who found himself in an impossible situation. You know, like, And because the family had seen his face, he was forced to kill them. Fuck you, Raider. I know damn well you jerk off to this on occasion you know the true details of what happened still swirl in your mind whenever you want to relive this day you honestly believe that these people will serve you in an afterlife joe will be your bodyguard julie will bathe you and attend to your every need joe jr will be your boy servant and male sex toy he wrote this shit not me and josephina who has the audacity to call who he has the audacity to call josie will be his star maiden to teach sex to and practice BDSM upon. Dennis Rader, who is currently still alive in prison and has been mentally stimulated throughout the years since his arrest in 2005 by assisting authors in writing books and playing a fantasy stock exchange with the help of newspapers and doing quite well, he might add. Dennis Rader gets a live and buzz off of his infamy. 
while the surviving Oteros try to live on without thinking about this shit every day. And the rest of us are left to take in what he did next. BTK says he unsuccessfully strangles Josephine next, but I really doubt it. He's saving her for last. She's the main reason he's there. Regardless, he apparently strangles Josephina to what he thinks is death and puts a bag over a surely hysterical nine-year-old Joseph Jr.'s head. Julie, the mother, wakes up at this point. She's only been knocked unconscious. BTK will later lament about how hard it was to strangle someone, harder than the movies made out. Julie demands Raider take the bag off her son's head when she pops back to life. Apparently, Raider does so, and Joe Jr., lays gasping on the floor. BTK sets the type of knot that made him a reputable uh, Boy Scout troop leader. A clove hitch. Easy to tie and untie if you know what to do. He loops it over Miss Otero's head and takes the posture necessary to strangle her to death. Julie apparently says about the only thing I truly believe any of his victims said word for word. Quote, May God have mercy on your soul. BTK then strangles the hog-tied defenseless woman to death in front of her still-alive children. He's shocked when the blood that's been filling her eyes suddenly bursts from her mouth and nose. Julie Otero has clearly died. Before moving on to the kids, Dennis covers her face with a pillow in a fleeting moment of shame. BTK glances over at Junior. He notices that the boy is playing possum. His eyes are closed, but his face betrays the effort to keep them so. Josephina may be playing the same game, but no matter. Both are hogtied, and she'll be here when he gets back. She was the main reason for his visit, after all. This is the first project, his first PJ, and it's titled PJ Little Mex. She's not Mexican, of course, but who gives a shit? Raider gets off the bed and heads out of the room. He returns soon after with more bags and a couple of shirts. He wraps one of the tees around the helpless boy's face and straps on a bag, then wraps another shirt over top of the bag. Joey Jr. comes back to life, screaming out things that can't be substantiated by a credible witness. BTK carries the helpless boy into his room and lays him on his bed. As the boy struggles and tumbles to the ground, his legs, arms, and face bound, BTK grabs a chair and slams his ass down in it, breaking one of the supports underneath. He intently observes the nine-year-old's final moments. When Joe Jr. finally concedes, Dennis Rader, future family man, church president, scout leader, takes a mental picture and then heads back into the master bedroom. Josephina is awake and likely in shock, this is what he wanted, this 11-year-old girl, all to himself. He leaves her for now and tromps down to the basement where he finds a sturdy pipe at which he throws a rope over and fashions a noose. He's mock hung himself many times in his own parents' cellar to this point, and this won't be much different, preparation-wise at least. He heads back upstairs and gets the girl. As he guides her away from her dead parents and past her dead brother, the downstairs of the basement in which BTK equates to a dungeon. 
This 31-year-old man asks the bound 11-year-old girl if she has a camera. She doesn't. Oh, well. His mind will have to serve. He'll bring cameras on future PJs. Lesson learned. He promises the worn-out little girl that she'll be with her family soon, in heaven. Then pushes her head into the noose and slowly strangles her. He pulls down her pants and underwear as she fights off her inevitable death and masturbates over her leg as she succumbs to strangulation. A strangulation that he controls and prolongs. They call this edging. BTK mounted his pleasure from every death he had clean control over. Raider doesn't outright rape any of his victims. He's a married man, a Lutheran. That would be cheating. That wouldn't be right. This guy's alive right now. Maybe even reliving this shit in pure detail. Nightly. Long after BTK had performed the right-hand rule and swept the house, taking Joe Sr.'s watch as a memento, he grabbed a radio too, I believe, but who gives a shit? Mainly he took the lives of Joe, Julie, Josie, and Joey. They were making sandwiches. They knew judo. Dad was a boxer. German Shepherd in the house and still, what the fuck? Stay paranoid. The three older kids returned from school and noticed that the garage was open, the car missing. Their mom had gone to pick up Joey and Josie, no doubt. They could hear Lucy... Not Lucy. Pretty much Lucy. Should have named it Lucy for all it fucking did. Lucky. Barking in the backyard, which was a little odd. Dad wouldn't put up with much of that. It was kind of strange. They entered to an unusually warm house. BTK had cranked the heat before leaving, thinking that that might mess with any evidence. Speed up decomposition, or I don't know. Of course, he left a cup of semen in the basement, but whatever. I've been hesitant to mention the surviving kids' names for some reason. They were and are Charlie, Danny, and Carmen. At first, they thought their mom and dad were playing a trick on them as they walked into their bedroom. After a minute of observing their stiff, unmoving, bound parents, Charlie, the eldest, went for a knife and cut their father free from his bindings. It was clear that this wasn't a prank now, as his arms spread apart as if thawing. Carmen took to snipping at her mother's mouth gag with fingernail clippers. The group was hysterical as they realized their parents were gone. They picked up a phone to call for help. That was of no use. The phone, too, was dead. They ran to a neighbor who came over alone and beelined to the Otero's bedroom. There he saw what looked at first glance to be a murder-suicide as Joe had a knife beside him. The knife that the Charlie had dropped after cutting the bindings from his father's hands. As responders swarmed in, the kids first pled with medics to save their mom and dad, but there was nothing that could be done. Charlie directed Danny and Carmen to go intercept Joey and Josie from school. He didn't want them to stumble upon the chaos. The police soon share the somber news that his younger siblings were inside and dead as well. One officer asked Charlie if his father would have any reason to hurt his family. What a fucking, what a fucking mess.
Investigators numbly combed over the wreckage of the Otero family household. Could this be a hit of some kind? The Oteros had been stationed in Panama for a spell, a place known for its deeply entrenched drug trade. Had Joe got mixed up in something and moved his family to Kansas in the hope of gaining asylum? This was clearly a very personal crime. Each murder had the earmark of having been relished by the killer. Or was it killers? The semen puddle found in the basement was so large that it was initially theorized that it had been created by more than one man. Later tests concluded it was all the same... Uh, same batch? <laughs> God damn it. There were no leads. A print was found that belonged to someone outside of the family. Eventually, it was attributed to the landlord, who was soon ruled out as a suspect. Hundreds of people were questioned. Nobody had seen or heard anything. A phantom had swept through the small white house on the corner of 803 North Edgemore, ruthlessly stolen the lives of four innocent people that vanished, muddying the public's perception of the threat that now lurked among them was the occurrence of another quadruple homicide months later. This crime put a pin in the bubble of fear average families had been inflating in their minds over the Otero massacre, as this fresh tragedy was quickly found to be a drug-related crime. Residents began to relax a little and relate the two incidents. Home invasion and murder was a thing that happened to bad people again. Was it disturbing? Yeah, of course, but that's what you get when you live that lifestyle. People started to move on. The talk of the town began to taper off, and Dennis Rader felt his buzz wane a little. That is, until October when the media began reporting that three suspects in the Otero murders were being interrogated, and the buzz shorted in his mind. It soon surged back to life in a stream of raging jealousy and resentment when he learned that one of the men had basically confessed. Rader had to do something. This was his masterpiece. He couldn't allow this imbecile just to claim it as his own. BTK. His pathetic ego, unable to see the benefit of someone else being blamed for his crimes, began to write his first letter. Gary Sebring, a known local scumbag, had been arrested for molesting a five-year-old girl behind a library. This kind of thing was par for the course with Gary. He'd once been spotted and subsequently charged for sexually assaulting a duck in a park. Yeah, you heard right. Gary Sebring forced himself upon a duck. <laughs> well, how does that work? How's that stalking process work? Did he uh, did he slip a croissant and on and bait the poor mallard in? Mrap, mrap. Fuck a duck. <laughs> Maybe he dipped himself in a little batter. You know, like flour first, then the egg mixture. Very important. I always mix those up. I always egg first, then flour. It seems, you know, that seems to make more sense. But it's actually flour first, egg next. Toss some breadcrumbs on his member. Maybe some panko. Crunch. Ramp, ramp, got you, baby. <laughs> Flippers smacking off his thighs. Anyways. <sighs> Raped a duck. Anyway, while in custody, Gary Sebring starts voicing hypotheticals about how he would have pulled off the Otero murders. He implicates his brother and a mutual friend of theirs in the fantasy plan. Police aren't convinced that Sebring's the man they're after, but... After finding that the other men have sexual offenses on their own rap sheets, due diligence is forced upon the investigators, and they interrogate the trio, making them the first real suspects in the Otero case. The media catches wind of this, and soon after they begin reporting on the possible break, a phone call is received by an editor at the Wichita Eagle newspaper via a hotline that has been established for any information regarding the Otero murders. The man on the other end begins speaking immediately. He says something along the lines of, Quote, Listen, 
and you listen good, because I'm not going to repeat it. Dennis Rader has made contact, and he quickly shares the location of a letter he wants the police immediately to read. It has been placed within a mechanical engineering textbook on the second floor of the Wichita Public Library. It is soon retrieved, and those who know the Otero crime scene shake their heads in disbelief at the detail and accuracy of the information within. There are some grammatical and spelling errors, along with a few details that don't line up, that investigators assume to be attempts to muddle the writer's profile. They never for an even a moment consider that the letter is a pretty accurate reflection of who they're dealing with. It's even an original copy, which is unheard of in such scenarios. Raider, in my opinion, isn't the brightest guy, but he's not stupid either. How about this? He's thorough, obsessed and highly motivated when it comes to his chosen trade. He's like that guy who can't add anything to a conversation if it isn't directly related to him. Someone who's so consumed with their own interests that anything outside of them is mundane. I call them savants of self. Raider definitely is one of these guys, but he's also a savant of sadism. And let's not forget, a narcissistic psychopath who, after accomplishing Project Little Max, became a bona fide monster and was proud of it. Mr. Fuck-a-Duck did serve one purpose in this life, at least. He indirectly provoked the real killer to make an appearance, giving the investigators something they hadn't had to this point. A real lead. The envelope of the letter has the sender's name written in the corner. The name reads, Bill Thomas Kilman. I'll leave you to decipher that code. It took authorities a little while to notice. Here's the meat of Raider's initial letter to police, where he proves he's the killer by relaying his knowledge of the crime scene. Quote, I write this letter to you for the sake of the taxpayer as well as your time. Those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity for the Otero murders. They know nothing at all. I did it. By myself. And no one's help. There has been no talk either. Let's put it straight. Joe. Position. Southwest bedroom. Feet tied to the bed. Head pointed in a southerly direction. Bondage. Window blind cord. Garrett. Blind cord. Brown belt. Death. The old bag trick and strangulation with clothesline. Rope. Clothed. White sweatshirt. Green pants. Comments. He threw up at one time. Had rib injury from wreck few weeks before. Laying on a coat. Julie. Position. Lying on her back, crosswise on the bed, pointing in southwestern direction, face covered with pillow. Bondage. Blind cord. Garrett. Clothesline cord, tied in a clove hitch. Death. Strangulation twice. Clothes. Blue house coat, black slacks, white sock. Comments. Blood on face from too much pressure on the neck. Bed unmade. Josephina. Position. Hanging by the neck in the northwest part of the basement. Dryer or freezer north of her body. Bondage. Hand tied with blind cord. Feet and lower knees, upper knees and waist with clothesline cord. All one length. Garrett. Rough hemp rope. Quarter inch diameter noose with four or five turns. Clothes. Dark bra cut in the middle. Sock. Death. Strangulation once, hung. Comments. Most of her clothes at the bottom of the stairs, green pants and panties, her glasses in the southwest bedroom. 
Joseph. Position. In the east bedroom, laying on his back, pointing in an eastern direction. Bondage. Blind cord. Garrett. Three hoods. White t-shirt. White plastic bag. Another t-shirt. Clothesline cord with clove hitch. Death. Suffocation once. Strangulation. Suffocation with the old bag trick. Clothes. Brown pants. Yellow brown striped t-shirt. Comments. His radio is blaring. All victims had their hands tied behind their backs. Gags of pillowcase material. Slip knots on Joe and Joseph's neck to hold leg down or was at one time. Purse contents south of the table. Spill drink in that area also. Kids making lunches. Door shade and red chair in the living room. Otero's watch missing. I needed one, so I took it. Runs good. Thermostat turned down. Car was dirty inside. Out of gas. I'm sorry this happened to society. Good luck with your hunting. Yours. Truly. Guiltily. P.S. Since sex criminals do not change their M.O. or by nature cannot do so, I will not change mine. The code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. B.T.K. You see B. at it again. They will be on the next victim. End quote. There's that train. It's so silly that Raider acts concerned about burning taxpayer money when uh, he himself has burned boatloads of it with the investigation he's forced. But whatever, that's our Dennis. Always projecting that he's a good guy. Even when he's, say, in court talking about murdering a whole family. Regarding Joe Otero's death, Dennis would make a real point in court later of telling the judge that he placed a coat under the guy because he was in discomfort. Oh, that's nice of you, Dennis. Then what happened? The end of this letter tickles a little in that Raider's trying to tell investigators some facts at the end there about sex criminals. Facts that aren't facts at all. He himself will change his M.O. as he racks up kills. It's his signature that stays the same. This signature has already been left all over another murder Raider committed earlier of this same year, April 4th of 74 to be exact. Three months after the Oteros and about six months previous to this letter. He hasn't mentioned it, as he's still a little shaken up by how bad the whole thing went. If you were a female who lived anywhere near the eventual crime scenes of BTK, you can almost be certain that he noticed you at some point while trolling. If you appeared to be alone, live alone, or in a home that was vulnerable in any way to attack, and you appealed to Raider, then congratulations, you would have qualified for the stalking stage. Catherine Bright was a pretty 21-year-old who lived at a rental property at 3217 East 13th Street, North, in Wichita. She lived there with her sister, and the two of them worked on the line at a Coleman plant, a plant that Dennis Rader himself worked at one point. Catherine was deep into BTK's stocking stage, only a couple of months after the Oteros had been slain. Dennis had fallen in love with the location of her residence and had seen Catherine walking into her house one day, saying aloud to himself, Quote, that's a possibility. Raider would frequently drive past the home to and from WSU, Wichita State University, where he was studying for his bachelor's in administrative justice, a course of study where the topic of BTK was no doubt brought up from time to time amongst teachers and classmates. Raider was taking night classes as he now had a day job installing security systems for ADT, a business that was booming after the Otero murders and would continue to thrive under the looming threat of BTK. 
This was another position in which I'm sure Raider was given plenty of opportunity to discuss his crimes with frightened customers. Wichita truly had a monster among them. Raider would gather information on his targets by looking in their windows once they were in the stocking stage. In the case of Catherine Bright, he moved quickly as he observed that she was frequently alone in the house, often during the day when her sister went to work on an opposite shift. He named the operation Project Lights Out. As he ramped up for his PJ, Raider began to develop his fantasy. This was always a very important piece of his planning. In Bright's case, he likened her to a cover girl from one of his true detective magazines. One in particular where a girl lay tied to a bed, her hands bound in front and attached to her neck, as she looked up in terror at a shadowy figure by her bedside. Raider felt that he was the shadowy man on the magazine covers, and he had the power to step off the page and do work. He would either strangle or suffocate her, he thought. That was for sure. He might even have sex with this one. The Minotaur rose to the surface. He had trouble retreating from the window some nights. A rust, as he called it, began to form. By early April, he couldn't convince himself any longer that the Oteros were a one-off. He had to feed the beast. On the morning of April 4th, 1974, Kathy's sister Karen headed to work while Kathy and her younger brother, 19-year-old Kevin, prepared to go to a bank appointment. Kevin Bright had spent the night at his sister's place. He was excited about an entrepreneurial idea he had and hoped the bank would loan him some money. Catherine was more than happy to join her little bro and the three siblings had spent the previous night talking about it over beers. No shadows had crossed the windows last night. BTK had rested up for the next day's events. He had no idea that Kevin was there. Soon after Kevin and Kathy left for the bank in his vehicle, Raider exited his own that he had parked near Wichita State University and headed to Project Lights Out. He wore the same Air Force Parker from the Otero murders, and within it he concealed a shoulder holster with a gun and another pistol in the pocket. He had two knives as well. Raider was pretty stubborn about his rust and fantasy. He wanted to approach the front door this time, acting as a student in need of tutoring who had the wrong address. He carried some random books to this effect. On his head, he had a balaclava-style hat that was not rolled over his face. He told himself he would do this as he approached the door, maybe, so he didn't have to kill the girl. But as he walked and thought about his plan, it became clear to him that this PJ would most certainly end with the girl's slow, torturous death, and the choice to bring the hat had only been a ruse or Russ. I'm going to keep on going with Russ here. He'd self-imposed on himself to push forward. Raider would later claim that he wore golf clubs for better breathability and feel. The rubber gloves he'd worn to the Oteros had filled with sweat and had bothered him throughout the event with the distance they created between his skin and his work. He'd also seen Jack Nicholson wear a pair of golf gloves in a role as a hitman and uh, thought they looked cool. Here's a quick example of Raider's propensity to fill in blanks in his memory or to completely fabricate details in order to fit his narrative. I looked into Jack Nicholson's movies from around this time, and unless I've overlooked something, Nicholson played a hitman only once in his career, a 1985 film named Prizzy's Honor. So that's a damn lie, Dennis, because the only Jack wearing gloves in 1974 was the Golden Bear, Jack Nicholas. Easy to get confused, I know. Is this more of an example of me being a nitpicker than it is of Raider being a mustache-faced liar? <laughs> Maybe. But we'll get our shots in where we can on old Denny, how about? 
As Raider approached the house, his excitement reaches a fever pitch as he sees his target's vehicle in the driveway. She's home, and she's likely alone. Raider strides up to the front door and knocks. There's no answer. He knocks again and listens closely. Nothing. No movement. Raider considers calling it off, but before he knows it, he's around the house and punching a hole through the screen door of the back porch, and he's in. He looks through the back door window and soon decides that the house is definitely empty. He smashes the glass and gains entry. BTK makes a quick round of the home, pistol drawn, and confirms that he's alone. He then grabs a broom and sweeps the broken glass into a corner. He doesn't want his target to notice it when she enters and possibly go fleeing back out the door. He begins collecting items to use for bindings. He finds some clothesline and lays down some strips of stocking and clothing on the beds. He finds a blue scarf that will do nicely to gag the girl. Raider's trying to decide where to hide when he hears two car doors slam just outside. Two car doors, shit! BTK comes out to the main area and stands in view of the front door. He sees a young man and lady, his lady, walk by a window. He freezes in place. Keys jangle and the door unlocks. Kevin and Kathy Bright step into a waking nightmare. As the door opens, Raider almost pulls the mask over his face, but he's psychically bound like a mummy. He pictures himself as one of the mummies on the pages of his dark magazines, in fact, and all mercy flees from his monstrous heart. He's furious at the appearance of another male in one of his fantasy scenarios. Of all the rotten luck, can a guy bind, torture, and kill at his leisure in this town? The two brights startle as they see the man standing in the living room. Raider tells him to freeze. Stay calm. No one will get hurt. He's a wanted man in California is on the run. He just needs some money and a vehicle, and he'll be on his way. The two are shocked into submission, and as if in a trance, allow Raider to herd them into a back bedroom. BTK orders Kevin to tie up his sister's hands. Kevin reluctantly sets to the task. Once complete, he himself is bound by his assailant. Raider looms over the smaller man, and Kevin would later recall how efficient and borderline gentle the man was about his task. He also noticed how sweaty he was, dripping with sweat. Once Kevin is secured to the bedpost, BTK grabs Catherine Bright by the arm and takes her to the other room. He has become eerily silent. Raider quickly ties the terrified girl to a chair and sets to gagging her with a blue scarf. She begins to squirm and squeal a little in panic. Once she's secure, Raider exits the room. Kevin has loosened his binds in this time. He believes he can break free, but as he hears the man begin rummaging in the kitchen, he allows himself to hope that this will be over in a minute. The man took their car keys, a good sign he was telling the truth about being on the run and just needing a vehicle, but suddenly the radio comes on and is cranked to full blast. The man swiftly re-enters the bedroom, walks up to Kevin wordlessly, and wraps the cord around his neck. He's being strangled. BTK yanks the young man up, almost to his feet by the cord around his neck, his legs still tied to the bedpost. It's instantly clear that he doesn't have control. The bindings on the man's legs break, as do the ones on his hands, almost immediately upon commencing the strangulation. BTK thinks to himself he should have brought his own cord. Dennis Rader would later say in court that if he had have had a hit kit, Kevin Bright would have died swiftly. 
as he wouldn't have been possibly able to unbind himself. From here on in, Raider will always have a hit kit with prepared bindings and a cache of weapons. The radio blaring was meant to drown out the young man's death throes. He wanted his target, Catherine Bright, to be as calm as possible when he started in with her. He was trying to keep his fantasy intact, but now she began to scream loudly as the two struggled in the next room. Her gag apparently loose. What a clusterfuck. Kevin breaks free and Raider grabs his gun and quickly fires. The bullet hits Kevin in the forehead and he drops in a spray of blood. BTK doesn't even bother to check if he's dead. He exits the room to take care of the screaming girl. BTK strides into the other bedroom and wastes no time. He starts strangling Catherine as she yells for her brother. Catherine has come loose from her binds as well, and Raider can't believe the lack of control he's able to gain over her. He would later say that, quote, KB fought like a hellcat. As he finally begins to gain some leverage in the strangulation of the girl, Raider hears movement in the other room. He abandons the strangulation and leaves the girl gasping and choking. He's damaged her larynx. Raider enters the other room to find Kevin stumbling to his feet. The bullet had only knocked him unconscious as it ricocheted off the side of his head. BTK sets about strangling Kevin again, but Kevin is much stronger than his size would indicate. He manages not only to fight off the cord, but to get a hold of Raider's other gun that's in his shoulder holster. He pulls it out and turns it to Raider's chest, then fires, but Raider dramatically manages to jam his finger between the hammer and the shell, a claim that would be substantiated by Kevin's later recollection. Raider wrestles the gun back, he gets some distance from Kevin, and fires again, from the hip, John Wayne style, as he says. This time, he hits Kevin in the mouth, and the young man again goes down in a spray of blood. Catherine's hysterical in the next room. The radio blares on. BTK has lost total control. It's time to finish this thing up, and fast. He re-enters Catherine's room and finds she's knocked over the chair. Her gag's loose, as are her bindings. This is far from what he envisioned. No magazine would ever paint this scene on their cover. It's too messy, too chaotic, too unbelievable. BTK drops to the floor and bears down on the poor girl with the cord wrapped tight around her neck. He's just getting her completely under his control when he hears movement from the other room, then the sound of Kevin barreling out the front door. Raider stops the strangling and gapes out a window as the bloody young man, trailing the makeshift bindings and sporting a noose of clothesline about his neck, lurches down the street. Raider considers abandoning the project, but at the last moment, he pulls out his 8-inch buck knife and begins stabbing the helpless girl. He stabs up and under her ribs in an attempt to puncture her lungs and heart. As she twists and turns from him, screaming all the while, Later in court, he claims to have stabbed her three times, which is the information many people have gone with when it comes to this incident. For some reason, there's always conflicting information in these cases. I don't know why the actual facts are never good enough. I read that she was stabbed 11 times, both in the front and back. And that at least two of the wounds pre proved to be fatal. So the two, three that people are talking about, I think that they're just talking about the fatal wounds. Um, I stuck with the 11 because that's how many I was able to count while observing her autopsy photo. Something I could never bring myself to do when I was simply interested in true crime and not trying to get things as correct as I possibly can for these podcasts. If you haven't seen the Otero crime scene photos for yourself, 
yet or any of these other photos from his future crime scenes, do yourself a favor and keep on keeping on. The stabbing happens quickly. Only a few seconds did Raider take in his attempt to finish Catherine Bright's life. He considers shooting her, but he's feeling an overwhelming sense of urgency to get out of the house. He flees. The young man's no longer on the street. He's been picked up by a concerned motorist and is currently calling the police. Raider hops into one of the Bright's vehicles, but can't manage to start it. He's in a panic. He's covered in blood, but the park is doing a good job of disguising it. He's cut his leg, too. He holds a binding in his hand still for some reason. As he speeds away from the scene, he throws it in the back of a pickup. Raider takes a meandering route back to his car. He runs so long and fast that he feels it in his lungs for days afterwards. He can hear sirens as he heads back to his vehicle. Nobody spots his escape or reports anything unusual in the area when police later canvass it. Kevin Bright is able to give a pretty good likeness of Raider. The picture will be in the paper and on the news intermittently for years. It's close enough to make Raider nervous, but no one ever questions him. As Raider cleans himself up before his wife gets in and tucks mementos from his victim like her driver's license away in a hidey hole, Catherine Bright clings to life. When police arrive at the call, they find Catherine bloodied and wheezing on the floor, half attached to a chair with bindings and a, holding a telephone in her hand. She managed to call the operator, but couldn't speak loud enough to ask for assistance. Her brother has done this for her. He's currently on his way to the hospital. With ligature marks around his neck, a bullet hole in his forehead, and two missing teeth that are found in some clothing by investigators later, the second shot from Raider knocked his teeth out, sparing his life a second time. Incredibly. Kevin can't stop asking about his sister. The first responding officer sits with Catherine Bright and tells her to hold on. An ambulance is on its way. Before she finally passes out, she whispers her final words. They are, quote, Help me. Catherine Bright will bleed out on the operating table five hours later. Rosetta Stone, everybody. You know, for a long time, I've been wanting to go to Japan, but the thing holding me back is that I'm intimidated by the language. And that's why I've been going pretty hard at the Rosetta Stone service. I want to be able to take my girl to Japan, a place that she's always wanted to go, and suddenly just start speaking fluent Japanese at the restaurant. That's my goal. <laughs> Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on a desktop or as an app and it truly immerses you in the language you want to learn. It's been a trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users, 25 languages offered. It's fast language acquisition. Rosetta Stone immerses you in a bunch of ways. Uh, there's an intuitive process where you pick up the language naturally, first with words and phrases, then sentences. They have the speech recognition feature. Built-in true accent gives you feedback on your pronunciation. Uh, it's like having a personal trainer for your accent. It's convenient, and it's an amazing value especially with this offer here. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Dark Topic listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. 
Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. All right, everybody, Badlands food. I've been thinking about getting a dog with my little family. We're about to introduce a dog, I believe, at some point here. And I have an interest in how we're going to be treating said dog. And it occurs to me, you know, that many dogs suffer from health issues. And with Badlands Food, actress Katherine Heigl, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dogs' joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health. She's looking at their food. What she discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that by just adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video explaining step-by-step how anyone could do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. It caught my attention, and as I'm about to uh, get a dog, I think that I'm going to uh, use this service, so I thought I'd share it with the audience as well. Uh, I know many of you have dogs. If you want to keep your dog healthy and happy, go to badlandsfood.com slash dark topic and watch Catherine's video right now again that's b-a-d-l-a-n-d-s-f-o-o-d.com slash dark topic to check it out badlandsfood.com all right everybody zipix toothpicks this is something that i use all the time so this episode is brought to you by zipix nicotine toothpicks Zipix brings you a totally satisfying, convenient, and great-tasting way to curb your nicotine cravings. Now you can get your nicotine fix anytime, anywhere, without having to rely on smoking or vaping. Zipix toothpicks give you an easier, better, and more discreet way to get your fix. They're available in six great, long-lasting flavors, and they have options in 2 milligrams and 3 milligrams of nicotine. Zipix are perfect for flights, sporting events, restaurants, podcasting... (laughs) Uh, literally anywhere that you smoke or vape, where that's banned. They're also one of the most cost-effective nicotine products on the market. Zipix also offers caffeine and B12-infused toothpicks if you're not a nicotine user or if you're trying to get away from your nicotine habit. Zipix have already helped tens of thousands of customers, including myself, to get their nicotine fix without needing to inhale smoke or vape oils. Make your lungs happy and try Zipix nicotine-infused toothpicks. So ditch the cigarettes, ditch the vape, and get some nicotine-infused toothpicks at zipixtoothpicks.com today. Get 10% off your first order by using the code DARKTOPIC at checkout. Your lungs will be glad you did. Must be 21 years of age or older to order. Warning, nicotine is an addictive chemical. Zip more, smoke less with Zipix nicotine toothpicks. The attack on the Brights is not attributed to the man who will soon become infamously known as BTK. The BTK killer, actually, but I feel that name's a little redundant. The bind, torture, kill killer? Come on, Dennis. (laughs) I'll give him this on his chosen moniker. It sounds like poison. BTK. Sounds like poison. 
The M.O. at the bright crime scene is quite different from the Otero scene. The phone lines weren't cut. The intruder broke into the home. There did not appear to be a sexual motive. The knots were different. There were granny knots instead of clove hitches. And the bindings fashioned from items around the house rather than provided by the perpetrator himself. The uh, victims had been stabbed and shot rather than strangled or suffocated. The attempts at strangulation certainly raised eyebrows of certain investigators, but in the end, the crime is chalked up as a burglary gone terribly wrong. Raider lays low, surfacing the one-time delayed claim to the Otero murders with the letter I previously read. He continues to troll, but isn't motivated to stalk and kill until three years later. He spends some time surveilling Kevin Bright's home, but never comes up with a plan he feels is shrewd enough to work. He wants to get rid of Kevin, but in the end, he decides that will draw more attention than it's worth. There are plenty of possible PJs that he writes about in his journals that never come to fruition. There's PJ Rose, which was to take place at a rose-colored home. A lone female with kids and no male ever spotted. There was PJ Paint, where a husband and wife ran a paint store of which the woman spent time alone in the evenings. Raider actually snuck up to a window looking at this woman one night and made some noise, spooking her and spooking him as well. There was PJ Backyard of a home that sat by the railway tracks and had an accessible backyard from said tracks. Raider continues installing security systems and studying for his degree. It isn't until mid-March 1977 that he's overwhelmed with the need to kill again. Requests for service from ADT are about to pick up steam. March 17th, 1977. Raider walks down Hydraulic Street with his hit kit. And to anyone noticing him, he may seem like a door-to-door -door sales type. That suspicion would be confirmed when he approaches a home and knocks on the door. There's no answer. The woman who lived there with her son had always been home at this time as Raider had stalked the area. But not today. He would later learn that she had taken her son to an appointment, an appointment that surely spared her life and maybe that of her boys as well. Friends and family would later say that God was looking out for her on that day. Unfortunately, God didn't stick around to see five-year-old Stevie Vianne make his way home without bumping into the monster on Hydraulic Street that day. The young boy had been returning from the store with some chicken noodle soup his mother had sent him for. She was at home sick with a stomach bug, and had chosen Steve for the errand as he was quite mature for his age, five years old. Stevie had an older brother and sister who were currently at home watching cartoons as her mom lay in bed. Raider approached the boy and showed him photos of his own family, asking if the boy knew these people. A Russ. The boy shook his head, no, and ran off down the street a bit and into his house. Raider followed. He figured the boy must have a mother in the house. He approached and knocked. He'd missed on his initial target, but he was hell-bent on this morning yielding results. The same boy opened the door, and Raider shoved his way in, brandishing a gun and saying that he was a detective. He told Stevie to get his mother and went over to switch off the TV, silencing the cartoons of which the kids had been glued to. They began to shout and complain as the strange man moved around their living room, closing the blinds and locking the door. Alerted to the sound of a man's voice, Shirley Vianne, the mother, entered the room in her nightgown, groggy and confused. She asked the intruder what he was doing in her house. 
Raider pointed the gun at her and told her that he had an issue with sexual fantasies and that he would need to tie the kids up. The kids weren't happy about this news. Their mother tried to calm them down. Raider opened up his hit kit and brought out some bindings. As he attempted to tie up one of the kids, they all began screaming and crying. This wouldn't do. He asked Shirley to grab some blankets and toys and place them in the bathroom. He then forced the children into the room and tied a rope to the inside doorknob and attached it to a pipe under the sink in the bathroom. One of the kids swore they'd get it undone. Raider then swore that if he heard them trying that, he'd blow their fucking heads off. The kids finally went silent. Raider forced Shirley Vianne to help him push the bed up against the door. Shirley was sick at this point. She threw up. Raider allows her to smoke a cigarette. He gets her some water. He assures her she won't be hurt, nor will the kids if she complies. They've all seen his face, though. He'll take care of the kids once he's through with her mother. Raider convinces Miss Vianne to lay face down on the bed. He then tapes her arms in a crisscross pattern behind her back, then ties her legs to the bedpost with rope, and then works the rope up her back and around her neck. The kids are screaming from the bathroom and banging on the door. They can hear what's happening, and they soon manage to get the door open a crack, just enough to see what's happening next. BTK puts a bag over Shirley's head and suffocates her. The kids are screaming and yelling. It's ruining the moment. She dies, and Raider tries masturbating, but the mood is being completely fucked up by the damn kids. He decides to head in there and pop bags over the heads of the boys and have his way with the young girl in a reenactment of what he's done to Josefina Otero. Then the phone rings. He's learned from the mother before he started that a neighbor would be checking in on them. The father's at work, but this call easily could be from a concerned neighbor whose next step may be to check on the house. Raider gathers his things and exits. He'll later kick himself for having been so brazen. BTK's first three projects have been nothing like he'd visualized or planned. The man from the magazine covers has stepped off the page and found that the intangibles of the real world are not to be underestimated. Especially when you're an overconfident baboon like Dennis Raider. He'll be perfect next time, he thinks, as he calmly walks from the scene. Behind him, the bathroom window of the Vianne house breaks, and the kids begin screaming out to the neighborhood for help. A little less than nine months later, on a cold night, December 8th, 1977, Raider walks up to a duplex of which one part was the residence of 25-year-old Nancy Fox. He'd stolen some of her mail and even visited her work to, quote, size her up. Raider had noticed that he had a similar glass window to the one Nancy had at the back of her residence. He practiced cutting his own window with a glass cutter leading up to this PJ he'd named Project Foxtail. He wanted to be quiet as possible due to the close proximity of neighbors. Fortunately for him, it appeared as though the neighbors weren't home. Finally, a bit of luck. Raider had chosen this evening as it was the anniversary of the Pearl Harbor attacks, and he fancied this to be a sneak attack as well. The name Fox excited him. It sounded like sex. It also inferred that his prey was clever, like a fox, and he was excited to prove that he was the wiser of the two. Raider crept around the house and cut the phone line. He then almost noiselessly broke the back window with tape in his cutter and gained entry. He took the time to collect some of Fox's personal items, 
undergarments. He always took underwear of some sort. He'd use it in the lean times to satiate himself by dressing up in the items and taking photos of himself. Often bound up in his parents' basement when they vacationed or in the woods hanging from trees. He'd even dig shallow graves and lay in plastic within them using a cord fixed to a camera that he'd pull and take the photos of himself bound and partially clothed in his victim's lingerie, at times wearing a creepy clear mask and wig to look more feminine. The fantasy ruined a little by his hairy pot belly always present. Anyways, Raider sat at Nancy's kitchen table with his gun and waited. He gazed at the Christmas tree Fox had set up by the window. He admired the cleanliness of the home. She seemed organized, like him. He felt himself swell down low as he realized he was about to have absolute control over such a well-put-together young woman. This one felt right. Nancy Fox arrived home on schedule, alone. She was startled as she turned from closing the door and a man accosted her. Some reports say that he hid in her closet and crept out just as she was getting into bed, but I think Raider would have been proud of that detail and I haven't read of him sharing it himself. As usual, people need to exaggerate an already outlandish situation in order to sell books or ad space. Regardless, BTK confronts Nancy Fox and explains much in the same way he had to Shirley Vianne that he has a sexual problem and he needs to tie her up and take some photos. Nancy was upset but admirably level-headed about the situation. They sat in her living room and Raider allowed her to smoke a cigarette as he continued to assure her that she wouldn't be killed or anything. Nancy at some point said something to the effect of, All right, then let's get it over with so I can go call the cops. She asked if she can use the washroom. Raider agreed, but propped the bathroom door open as he did so. He requested that when she returned that she be naked. Fox returns wearing her underwear and her thin pink sweater. She asked that she be allowed to stay partially clothed. BTK agrees, a little excited at building rapport and trust, as he knows he'd soon be able to snatch it all away. Nancy Fox is handcuffed and laid face down on the bed. Her legs are tied tight. Raider pulls off her panties and speaks from his dark heart. He asks if she's ever had it in the rear end. Nancy is panicking now. BTK has his pants down, but there's never any chance that he'll actually rape her. He gets his release from the strangulation and the power. He crawls on top of her with a belt and wraps it around her neck as she struggles. He brings her close to death, then releases. He whispers in her ear that he's BTK, the bad guy everyone's worried about. And she should be very worried. Nancy manages to reach back and grab Raider's crotch and squeeze. But this only amps BTK up. He strangles her to death as she does so. Raider then replaces the belt with some pantyhose and ties it tight. He also takes off the cuffs and wraps them with pantyhose as well. Her wrists, that is. He's posing his victim. The sight of her laying like this is too much for him. He grabs a nightgown and masturbates into it. Investigators will find this laying beside Nancy's head the next day. Raider rummages through Nancy's purse and steals her driver's license. He also takes some jewelry some of which he may have later given to his daughter. He can't be sure, but I think he's pretty sure 
Why else would he mention it? The next day, Raider is still so high from what he considers to be an almost perfect hit that he calls the murder in from a payphone. It's a reckless move, but Raider can't seem to help fucking up something with one of his projects. Here's that call. Raider expected the news covers to be thick with BTK chatter, but much to his disappointment, there was nothing. After sending some really terrible poetry to the newspapers in January of 78, around a month after murdering Nancy Fox, Raider waits to see if it will be published. It isn't. Maybe because his poems are so dumb. Here's the one he wrote about Nancy Fox to give you a little taste. There was another one relating to Shirley Vianne, I believe, that um, the paper mistakenly did publish, but they published it in the uh, in the classifieds. Like, they thought it was a love note from somebody to like, to their girlfriend. <laughs> so they didn't, they didn't pay any BTK attention to it. They just posted it. Uh, but this is the one from Nancy Fox. I'm trying real hard not to go too deep into Raider and his shit, but it's, a, it's impossible. This is about BTK. I'm trying to focus on his crimes and stuff, but he did so much weird shit on the side that I'm just going to have to tell you as much of it as I can, I guess. That's what we're here for. This poem that Raider writes to, uh, about Nancy Fox, his wife actually finds it stuffed into him the side of his chair. She walked in on him as he was writing it. He stuffed it in the chair and forgot about it. And when she finds it, she asks him about it. And he tells her that in school they're studying BTK. So... That's why it's there. She notices that his writing is similar to, to a lot of the writings that the, the papers post and all that, but I don't know, she never catches on. Here's that poem. It's a play on the American folk song, Oh Death, if you've ever heard it. It's titled, Oh Death to Nancy. Quote, what is that that I can see? Cold, icy hands taking hold of me. For death has come, you all can see. Hell has opened its gate to trick me. Oh, death. Oh, death. Can't you spare me over for another year? I'll stuff your jaws till you can't talk. I'll bind your legs till you can't walk. I'll tie your hands till you can't make a stand. And finally, I'll close your eyes so you can't see. I'll bring sexual death unto you for me. Love, Dennis Rader. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. By February, Dennis is fed up. He needs some recognition. He sends a letter to a TV station. It's given to police. This is what that letter said. Quote, I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on Vianne unamusing. A little paragraph would have been enough. I know it's not the media fault. The police chief, he keeps things quiet. and doesn't let the public know there's a psycho running around, loose, strangling, mostly women. There's seven in the ground. Who will be next? How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cop think that all those deaths are not related? Golly gee, yes, the M.O. is different in each, but look, a pattern is developing. The vixens were tied up mostly. Most of them women found, phone cut, some bondage, sadist tendencies, no struggle, outside the death. 
spot, no witness except the Vians kids. This is verbatim, by the way. If you haven't noticed, it's a fucking mess. Continued. They were very lucky. Those kids, a phone call saved them. I was going to tape the boys and put plastic bags over their heads like I did Joseph and Shirley and then hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would have been. Josephina, when I hung her, really turned me on. Her pleading for mercy, then the rope took hold. She's helpless, staring at me with her wide, terror-filled eyes, the rope getting tighter and tighter. You don't understand these things because you're not under the influence of Factor X. The same thing that made Son of Sam, Jack the Ripper, Harvey Gleitman, Boston Strangler, Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, Pantyhose Strangler, a Florida Hillside Strangler, Ted of the West Coast, and many more infamous character kills, which seem a senseless, but we can't help it. There is no help, no cure, except death or being caught and put away. It a terrible nightmare, but you see I don't lose any sleep over it. After a thing like Fox, I come home and go about life like anyone else. And I will be like that until the urge hit me again. It's not continuous, and I don't have a lot of time. It takes time to set a kill. One mistake and it all over. Since I about blew it on the phone, handwriting is... Outletter guide is too long and typewriter can be traced too. My short poem of death and maybe a drawing later on, real picture, maybe a tape of the Sam will come your way. How will you know me? Before a murder or murders, you will receive a copy of the initials BTK. You keep that copy. The original will show up someday on guess who? Maybe you not be the unlucky one. P.S. How about some name for me? It's time. Seven down and many more to go. I like the following. How about you? The BTK Strangler? Wichita Strangler? Poetic Strangler? The Bondage Strangler? Or Psycho? The Wichita Hangman? The Wichita Executioner? The Garot Phantom? The Asphyxiator? BTK. End quote. He signs at BTK. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I don't know. How about we go with BTK, Dennis? <laughs> he also goes on to describe uh, the previous two murders of Nancy Fox and Shirley Vianne. He admits to a seventh victim, but won't name her. And that would be Catherine Bright. He won't name her because uh, Kevin Bright had seen him and he didn't want uh, that to be attributed to him because it was too close to... Uh, to them getting a lead to eventually catching him. The papers respond to this letter and write an article warning the citizens of Wichita that there's a serial killer on the loose. There's also a news conference, a public plea, and direct message to BTK from the chief of police broadcast on television. Within the recorded message, investigators have embedded a subliminal clip. For a split second, a white background with black lettering appears. It says... Now call the chief. There is also a pair of upside-down glasses sketched under the message, something BTK had included himself in letters, a nod to the fact that Josefina Oturo had worn glasses of which he carefully set aside, and to the fact that he left Nancy Fox's glasses upside down on a bedside table. Dennis Rader is somewhat satisfied with the attention. The subliminal message doesn't land, and he goes silent for almost eight years. He continues to troll and plan projects, once entering a home and laying in wait only to spook the woman as she entered, sending her back out the door. 
immediately losing control of the situation as usual. He flees the scene. Uh, he collects all of his items that he had laid out in the house. There were plenty of PJs that just didn't come to happen. One in particular that really bothered him, bothered him enough to taunt his potential victim after his mission had failed. He lay in wait at the home of Anna Williams on April 28th of 1979, almost two years after the Nancy Fox murder. Anna was late that evening, and Raider eventually gave up and went home. Miss Williams returned home around 11 p.m. to find that her phone line had been cut, and someone had been rummaging around her things. Next to her bed were some makeshift bindings and wire. Police were called and found that an intruder had broken in through the basement window. Some of her jewelry was missing. The incident was considered a break-in, and though shook up, the 63-year-old moved on with her life. That is, until she received a package addressed to her dead husband a couple of months later on June 15th, 1979. Anna's daughter opened it, and what they found inside would forever haunt them. Inside were personal items of Anna Williams, a scarf, some jewelry, also a sketch of a bound, nude, terrified woman meant to be Anna. There was a poem titled, Oh Anna, Why Didn't You Appear? I'll spare you the reading of that one. Raider kept himself busy with family life, church activities, and scout leader duties once his son joined. He continued to tie himself up and wear his victim's clothing while masturbating when he had time. Neighbors later reported that he'd sometimes head out to his uh, son's tree fort in the backyard at dusk with a flashlight that they see him looking at something in there for hours. He'd emerge later and head back into the house. We now know that he was in there going over his items, of course. Dennis wasn't one for pornography, but he did create his own material. Basically, serial killer scrapbooking with black tape and cutouts of women fixed with nooses he'd drawn on. He called these slick ads. Dennis would go over his materials in the privacy of that treehouse the same way a grandmother may look over photos of her lifetime while sitting on a couch and sipping tea. The city of Wichita sat on edge for eight years until BTK struck again, all the while being fitted with alarm services by the very man they feared might at some point gain entry to their homes, then bind, torture, and kill them. On April 27, 1985, Raider, as usual, was staring intently through a window when he decided upon his eighth victim. There was a major difference this time, though. This window was his own, and he didn't look in, he looked out out across the street and towards his neighbor's house as she arrived home from work and headed into an empty house. Maureen Hedge was a 53-year-old neighbor of Raider's who lived at 6254 North Independence. Raider lived at 6220 of the same street. She enjoyed gardening and lived alone. Maureen had a boyfriend by the looks of it, but Raider wasn't too concerned about that. Raider had been friendly with her a couple of times in passing. He also enjoyed flowers and gardening. He began stalking her from the comfort of his home. It had been quite some time since he'd felt this strong about a target. Soon he had a routine down. Raider dubbed the project PJ DeFlower and set a hit date for April 26th of 1985. When the 26th came, Dennis took his son to a camp for scouts and helped set up. At some point he complained of a headache and left the group, apparently to go home. This was his plan all along, a plan that he would use in the future as well. He had a hit kit arranged in a bowling bag. 
He drove his car to a bowling alley, parked his car, and headed in. Raider ordered a beer, of which he half-heartedly drank. He only needed it to smell of alcohol. He poured some of it on his hands and rubbed it into his face and neck. He swished the beer around his mouth and then called the taxi. When the cab arrived, Raider behaved as though he were tipsy, and when they neared his neighborhood, he asked the driver to let him out so that he could walk off some of the booze. The cabbie smiled knowingly and pulled over. Raider paid the man and walked the remainder of the distance to his neighbor's house. Raider crossed through a park and used his in-law's backyard, his in-laws live on the same street as well, to, or nearby, to sneak behind the houses and up around to Marine Hedge's home. Her car was there, which was unexpected. He would have to be very quiet when breaking in. Raider got in through the back door and silently crept through the house and up to the master bedroom. Marine's car may have been there, but she certainly was not. Soon, he heard something outside. Voices. That of a man and a woman. He ran to hide in a spare room closet, brushing through hanging beads in a doorway as he did so. Raider was studying the beads with his hands when the front door opened and Maureen Hedges entered with her boyfriend. Raider crept back to a closet to hide. He'd wait and see if the male would leave. If he headed up to bed with his target, then he'd simply have to handle another scenario similar to the bright situation. PJ lights out. Oh, I just, I, honestly, I just got that. PJ lights out. Bright. Lights out, right? Bright. Catherine Bright. Lights out. You probably already know that. I I honestly just got that. Not bad. Give me that one, Denny. After about an hour, Raider was starting to get impatient. It was nearing 1 a.m. and he needed to be back at the camp by morning to pick up his son. Finally, at about 1, the male visitor left. And soon after, BTK listened as Marine headed to bed. He waited for a while, long enough for her to likely have fallen asleep. Then very carefully, he crept into her room, which he'd have time to get the layout of, and turned on the bathroom light, which awoke the woman immediately. She screamed and BTK abandoned his hit kit, jumped on the bed, and strangled her to death with his hands. He had hoped to keep her alive so that he could transport her to another location he had all set up for a photo shoot, but she died then and there after a ferocious struggle of which she ultimately lost. BTK stripped his dead neighbor, then rolled her in a blanket. He carried the body out to her vehicle, then drove to his church, where he dragged the body inside, put black bags over the windows so no passersby would see the lights on and went about stringing Marine Hedge's body up in different ways and states of bondage. Took photos with his Polaroid camera. You want a refund there yet, patron? (laughs) Like halfway through here. I'll take a beer break in a minute. I'll I'll have a beer with you. You have a smoke or something like that, all right? Once he was satisfied with the pictures that he'd taken of Marine, BTK cleaned up dragged Marine's body back out to her vehicle and dumped it along a roadside in a ditch where people were known to dump their garbage. He covered the body with branches, then headed back to a lot close to the bowling alley. He threw items at the window as he drove. When he parked, finally, Raider wiped the car down, then walked to his vehicle at the, fo- at the bowling alley. He then drove back to his son's scout's camp and seamlessly re-entered his white hat life. This was a sociopathic ability that Raider called cubing. Well, it's, it's compartmentalization is what it is. He, he could switch it off. 
He was always aware of what he had done. He just didn't dwell in it. Like leaving a noisy room to gain solace in a quiet room. You can still hear some noise, but it's incoherent. You know, it's muffled. And much easier to relax in this new room, knowing that you're still, still hearing it, but you're not directly involved in it. We can all do it, really. It's just that guys like Dennis Rader sharpen this ability like a tool. It's a skill to control something as innate as guilt. Raider's family took some criticism for not recognizing who they had living with them. I did a little on his wife just earlier. But they can't be blamed for not seeing something that never appeared. In fact, as the murder started to happen closer to home, Raider, like many men in Wichita, had to, uh, or Park City, had to assure that, uh, assure his family that they'd be safe from BTK. Trust me, he'd say. Nobody's going to hurt you. You're safe. You're safe with me. <laughs> there are victims in this mess as well. The body wasn't discovered right away, and Raider was getting a little worried that he'd forgotten to take the ligature from around Marine's neck. He decided he needed to retrieve it, as it would directly link her murder to a BTK-style killing. And Marine's boyfriend was at the moment being considered the prime suspect. Uh, the fact that Raider was trying to downplay it to everybody that he spoke to so as not to draw any attention to himself. Uh, but he enjoyed hearing that he was being suspected nonetheless. His wife, in fact, Dennis Raider's wife, in fact, was, was convinced that Marine's boyfriend had murdered her. Raider still worried about the binding that he left around Marine's neck. He drove, drove his company truck out to the body and rummaged through the brush looking for it. It took him a while to find it, but <clears throat> but he finally did and removed the cord. He also took an ankle bracelet with her initials on it, which he would later wear at what he called motel parties. These are like uh, business trips where he had a room to privately dress up in his victim's clothes and jewelry and tie himself up and shit. He had that mask that was painted with makeup. Uh, we'll get to that mask soon enough here, though. For three weeks, Raider had been stalking who had become his ninth victim, Vicky Wedgley. It was a little over a year since PJ DeFlower, and Raider had been using some downtime at work to stalk Vicky from a distance while parked in a lot that was hidden by in direct view out of her home. I'm going to stop. Ooh. All right, quick little break then. Hmm. So, what do you think? <laughs> I knew BTK. Like most people, I, I I thought I knew BTK. I thought I knew what he did. But when you... Uh, it's one thing hearing that a woman got strangled and, and uh, you know, murdered. And it's another to go deep onto what the, what the details were. Like with, uh, with all of them. I mean, the, the one that really stuck out to me there was... Um, Shirley Vianne with her kids being in the bathroom. Like, that's fucking horrific. <sighs> it is horrific to hear your... Put a fucking bag over her head. Hands behind her back. Her kids are right there. She's sick. This is what really got me. And I, a lot of it gets me. But, I mean, I've, I'm sick right now. I'm not as sick as as, uh, as, she, as Shirley sounded like she was. Um, 
but I've been that sick before. You know, you have a stomach virus and you're throwing up, shitting your pants and all that. And she was there. She was that sick. And it's very uncomfortable to be that sick. And then to be like tied up and bound. The misery of that. It's miserable either way to be in that situation. I've been handcuffed a couple of times, <laughs> like by police, for small things. No, no big deal. But it's very, it takes everything away from you. You just feel so vulnerable, you know, and you're done. You're trapped. It's over. You're fucked. And to have your hands tied behind your back as your kids are screaming in another room, I really can't imagine what that must be like. And being sick on top of it, you know, and throwing up and and then... Anyways, I don't got to go through it, though. I just fucking explained it. I don't know why I'm going over it again. That one, that one is rough. They're all fucking rough. If I had to choose someone to get murdered by, like historically, be a victim of any of those killers, uh, BTK would be near the bottom of my list. To be Joseph Otero, the father, and think you're making the right move, and then know that you didn't when you're bound and, you know, fucking bag over your head and your family's screaming in your ears and you know that they're next, that's fucked. That is so fucked up. That's more torturous than, you know, being carved up by, um, I don't know, Jeffrey Dahmer, having a, having a, a hole drilled in your head to become a sex slave of Jeffrey Dahmer. I'd rather that than, than have a bag thrown over my head with my family screaming around me. <clears throat> All right, that's a nice break. All right, let's get back to it. For three weeks, Raider had been stalking who had become his ninth victim, Vicki Wedgley. It was a little over a year since PJ DeFlower, and Raider had been using some downtime at work to stalk Vicky from a distance while parked in a lot that was hidden but in direct view of her home at 2404 West 13th Street. He used his work vehicle in doing this. A security company man doesn't ring many alarm bells. Unless he's testing them during installation, that is. Raider developed a plan. He would go undercover as a telephone repairman. His work clothes fit the rust, but he needed a helmet. Raider cut a Southwest Bell logo from his phone book and taped it to a hard hat. He fashioned some phony ID and found something that looked like an instrument telephone repairman might use. A gigamomometer, perhaps. On September 16th of 1986, this now 41-year-old Dennis Rader drove his personal car to the lot of which he'd been stalking from. He wore sunglasses, carried a briefcase, and had his hard hat pulled down. It was a bright, sunny mid-morning in Wichita as Rader strode confidently up to a neighbor of his intended victim. He knocked and a couple answered. He asked some technical questions and was soon on his way. Raider thought this to be a good idea for some reason, that it would make him look less suspicious if he was seen going to more than one home. He was maybe playing a movie scene out in his head. Nothing was said later about a telephone repairman in the area, so who knows if it's true or not. Raider had partially chosen the Wedgley home as it had a porch out front, of which he'd be covered from view of the street. As he approached his targeted house, he heard the sound of a piano playing. Later, he'd say he'd wished it had been an organ, as this instrument had more sexual appeal to him. The organist at his church had been in the stocking stage for years. PJ Organ, or 
P.J. Church. Never came to be as Raider couldn't pull together a solid enough plan. But now he had the best, next best thing. It was a P.J. Piano. He titled it Moments Before the Plan Went Into Action. Raider stepped into the porch area and knocked. The piano stopped, and soon Vicky Wedgley appeared at the door. BTK asked if he can check her phone line, and Vicky graciously allowed him entrance. She watched as the repairman hunkered and fiddled with some device, then gasped when he turned around brandishing a gun. Vicky began to cry and plead. She shared that her husband would be home shortly for lunch. She asked him not to hurt her little boy. BTK ordered the woman to the bedroom and told her he needed to tie her up. There were dogs out back, raising cane, as Raider would later share in court. He moved quickly. The windows of the house were all open, and he believed that the husband was indeed due home at any minute. BTK ordered Vicky to put her hands behind her back. He then tied them with a stocking. But just as he was finishing up, Vicky decided to fight. She broke free from the bindings and scratched, screamed, kicked, and clawed at her assailant. One of the scratch marks dug into Raider's face. He had a scar from it for the rest of his life. It does to this day. His life's not over yet, unfortunately. The DNA under Vicky's fingernails would later clear her husband of suspicion and confirm this as a BTK murder. Raider eventually got the upper hand and strangled Vicky to death with a nylon stocking. She appeared to be dead, but wasn't quite. Her husband would cut loose the bindings minutes after BTK fled, and paramedics attempted to revive the still barely living woman, but unfortunately she passed away. Raider quickly arranged the body before leaving, exposing her breasts and posing her for a few pictures. He then considered taking care of the two-year-old boy, but decided against it. He hadn't seen anything, and he got it. He had to go. Raider left in the Wedgley's Monte Carlo. Raider would later learn that he actually passed Mr. Wedgley during this getaway, Wedgley looking at the vehicle and thinking, huh, that looks a lot like my car. Raider made his way back to his own vehicle. He could hear sirens wailing. His instinct had been right about the husband returning. PJ Piano had barely come to be. It was just as well. Dennis Raider's own lunch hour was over anyways. Raider lost his security job in 1988 and went jobless until around 1990. During this time, he became depressed, even suicidal. He had his hidey holes and cache of items to keep him busy. He continued stalking and even broke into a few homes. When he read that Ted Bundy had been executed in 89, he became extremely jealous of the press coverage. The seed began to sprout in Raider's mind that someday he might have to rise to the surface in order to collect the recognition he felt he deserved in the annals of serial killer lore as well. Raider gained temporary work being what's known as a white rat in the Census Bureau. He acted as the interim supervisor and reported back job performance to the head office. As the year of 1991 began, Raider felt the need to cube over to his dark half. The noise in the other room was becoming too loud to ignore. It was time to kill. One for the road, as they say. Raider had become obsessed with the PJ he'd tentatively titled Project Dogside as there were dog kennels near the target's home. He'd been going for bike rides and hiding his bike in some bushes while he stalked his prey, peeking in her windows and getting the routines of 62-year-old Dolores Davis's life down pat. He noticed that she liked to read late at night in her bedroom and she appeared to live alone. Raider had other possible PJs in progress at this time as well. There was Project 
plane, which targeted a female church member whose husband had recently died. He had been a pilot. But in the end, Raider decided to go with PJ Dogside, which soon changed to PJ Mustang when he found out Dolores Davis drove a Mustang. He badly wanted to make his getaway in that vehicle. This was a real point of pride, a moment of power for Dennis during his, his murders to drive away in their, in their vehicle. Um, and the detail of her having a Mustang may have tipped the scales in Dolores' disfavor in the end. Raider set the date for mid-January 1991. There was a scout event called the Dead of Winter Campout scheduled for that time. Raider would use the scouts again as cover. In the morning, he arrived and helped get everything set up. By afternoon, he'd come up with an excuse to leave. He went to his parents' home. They were on vacation and uh, got into his hit clothes there. He then drove to his church where he left his vehicle and walked to Dolores Davis's house. It was late by this point. He crossed through a cemetery and crept up to the home at 6226 North Hillside. Dolores was still up and reading as usual. Raider waited until the lights went out around 11 p.m. He attempted to get in the back door, but he was having trouble being stealthy about it. It was very cold out, and he couldn't stand being out there much longer. He decided to take the burglar approach. Raider picked up a cinder block from the yard and chucked it through the back sliding door. As he climbed through the hole, a metal pipe in his hand, Dolores came rushing up to him, asking if he'd hit her house with his car? Raider pulled the old convict on the run gag and demanded that the woman do as he say. Dolores Davis refused, but Raider soon convinced her to comply by saying, quote, Ma'am, you're going to have to cooperate. I've got a club. I've got a gun. I've got a knife. I suggest you do. You take your choice as you want it. End quote. Dolores tells Raider that she's expecting someone. Raider curses internally. It's unlikely, but he's very sensitive to this kind of threat due to past experience. He wanted to spend some time with this one. BTK moves quickly. He handcuffs the distraught woman to her bed and tells her that he's just going to grab some food, warm up a bit, then be off with her car. Dolores asks if he can take out some new shoes she's bought before he drives off. BTK agrees. He yanks the phone line out, then heads to check where the car's at. He grabs a glass of water, which he would later say was a part of his signature, a way of claiming dominance of a home. Once he had the getaway all mapped out, BTK returned to the bedroom with the shoes from the car. Dolores seemed convinced now that she wouldn't be harmed since he brought those in and didn't struggle when the man moved the cuffs off of her wrists and tied her hands to her feet with a ligature. Once this was done, Dolores must have felt a shift in Raider's energy as she began to plead for her life. BTK slipped a rope of pantyhose around her neck and strangled her from behind. Once he was sure she was dead, he quickly rolled her in a blanket and dragged her to the trunk of the Mustang. He felt the pressure of the woman's threat of a visitor bearing down on him, but he calmly backed out of the garage, stopped, got out, closed it manually, then drove off to one of his fishing spots where he dumped the body in some bushes. He then headed back to the house as he realized his gun was missing. Raider returned to where he'd broken in and there it was. It must have dropped from his pocket when he threw the block through the window. This was sloppy as fucking usual. He then decides to head back into the house as it's still silent uh, to steal some keepsakes. He's thrilled when he finds a camera. 
He has his own camera, but it would please him to take his pictures with a victim's equipment. He grabs a jewelry box and some clothing, then heads out, throwing the car keys on the roof. Raider makes his way back to the church and his vehicle. It's now snowing as he trudges through the graveyard. When he gets to the church, he worries about the tracks that he'll leave as he drives away. He goes to hide some items underneath the church's shed, then heads inside to change his clothes and pick glass from his shoes so as not to drag any evidence into his vehicle. He then fits the back of a station wagon with plastic and heads off to get the body. It takes a little while to find Dolores, as it did with Maureen, but he finally locates her body and loads it into the car. Raider admits that the drive felt uncomfortable. He didn't like a dead body being in his breathing space. He drove back roads trying to find an old barn of which he planned to take some photos in. Raider had, uh, excuse me, Raider, Raider was obsessed with barns. His, his, his eventual plan. Ra- Raider was tied up in a silo by some kids when he was being bullied. Uh, when he, when he was a kid, he was tied up in a silo and left there. So he had this fantasy of, you know, about barns and silos. He wanted to like set up a torture chamber in one. He had sketches about it as well. What he wanted to do was have this barn that had a train track going through it and to buy a train and to, at some point, kidnap a woman, <clears throat> tie her to the train tracks and run her over with his train. But that never happened. Thank God. He's looking for uh, for a barn at this point with the, with the, with Dolores Davis's dead body in the back. It's got to be four in the morning at this point. He can't find the barn. It's too foggy, too snowy. Raider had heard in one of his true crime magazines that minotaurs use culverts to hide bodies. Inspiration struck, and he headed through the snow and fog in his station wagon to a nearby bridge. Raider drags the body down a bank and under a bridge. He uh, needed to get back to the scout camp by this time, so for now, he would just leave the body there and take care of his commitments. Once back at the camp, Raider crawls into his tent and sleeps until breakfast time. He gets up to make the kids breakfast, then takes a long nap in his station wagon. Later that afternoon, he tells the other scout leaders that he has another headache and leaves to grab some items from a ditch where he had hidden them. Then he goes off to a rest stop where he changes out of his scout uniform. As he does so, he runs into the closest call probably of this entire decades-long ordeal at this point. He hears someone enter the change room. It's a police officer, and he's asking who's in there if he owns the station wagon out front. Raider nervously replies, yes. The officer says when he's done, he needs to speak to him. Raider tells him he'll be out in a minute. The officer tells Dennis that there's been a crime in the area and they're stopping anyone who seems suspicious. Raider explains that he was on his way to scouts. He showed the officer his uniform. This was good enough to soften the trooper's demeanor and he lets Raider carry on. If this trooper had have searched the station wagon, he would have found items belonging to the missing woman just about every officer was now looking for. Raider arrives at the bridge and heads under to take pictures. He puts his mask on the woman's face for a few of them. He even leaves this mask at the scene. I don't know where it is today. I've been looking for it. I th- Maybe. I, I was wondering if it got auctioned off or something like that. No, I wouldn't want that fucking mask. I'm just saying. I was wondering if it was at like the uh, Serial Killer Hall of Fame or something. Uh, I know Ted Bundy's uh, Volkswagen Bug is, is at in Washington at the uh, 
some kind of crime hall of fame. So I don't know where this mask is. It's got to be somewhere. They had it in court. Um, there are some really disturbing photos of Raider, like I said earlier, wrapped in plastic and half buried with a tube coming out of his mouth while wearing this mask. Um, and he also took photos with this on Dolores Davis. He later said that he wished he had have kept it. He missed it at his motel parties. He got another one, but it just wasn't the same. The body was soon found and connected to the Marine Hedge murder. There were whispers that these were BTK-related crimes due to the strangling method, but no leads developed. They didn't hear from BTK, and Dennis Rader went underground, seemingly for good. Dennis Rader had completed his Bachelor of Administrative Justice in 1989 and finally landed a job as a compliance officer in Park City, Kansas, where he lived in May of 1991, four months after what would be his final murder. For this job, he had to give prints, which spooked him a little, but he'd always worn gloves, so there was no need to get his victim's panties in a bunch. The age of forensics was being born, and Raider took a step back, realizing that the footloose days of the 70s and 80s were coming to an end for old serial killers such as himself. Raider loved his new job. It gave him a great sense of power, and like his security installation gig, afforded many reasons to be on people's property where he could stalk without suspicion. There were plenty of complaints that Raider was overbearing in his position. He was pushy with women and even bothered one resident about having a boyfriend. He'd look in her windows and when confronted once told her something like, you know what to do, get rid of him. Raider was starting to get really weird publicly. His ego was inflated almost to its limits. He was president of his church had a job of authority, and everywhere he went, people spoke of the crimes he had secretly committed himself. In this same case of the woman that he was uh, looking in the windows of and telling her not to have a boyfriend, Raider had this woman's dog euthanized in an unheard of expedient fashion. Uh, it's assumed that he let the dog out himself and then grabbed it, brought it to the uh, vet and told him that it was a problem and it was, it was dead within a couple of hours. It's not clear which case this was, but Raider was called into court for complaints against him, and he won the case uh, easily. He had prepared himself for court as if he were defending against the crime of the century. The opposing lawyer could not believe how meticulous this dog catcher had been. In my mind, the fact that Raider had gone to such lengths to defend himself, and that he had such meticulous notes, should have proved that there was an issue here with this weirdo. He came to court ridiculously prepared, like the Pelican Brief. But the courts don't work on uh, common sense, as we learn from time to time here. Raider won the day. Another victory for Mr. Cock of the Walk. Raider settled into serial killer retirement by 2004. He had slowed down with his motel parties and obsessing over his hidey holes. He was closing in on 60 years old and was considering completely detaching himself from that BTK life. He began ridding himself of some of what he called his mother load of incriminating materials. But then in January of 2004, the Wichita Eagle published a piece for the 30-year anniversary of the Otero family murders. There was a book that was going to be written, and the story made mention of how many people in 2004 weren't even aware of BTK, and the fact that he may still be out there to this day, although many experts at the time believed him to be either imprisoned or dead due to the long drought of BTK-style murders. Two months later, the writer of this article received a letter from one Bill Thomas Kilman. 
If you haven't figured it out already, I'm sure that you have. It's BTK's initials. The letter had been sent on the anniversary of Shirley Vianne's murder that happened in 1977. Inside the envelope was a photocopy of Vicki Wedgerly's ID and three Polaroids showing her laying bound and dead at the crime scene. BTK symbology adorned to the photocopy of the ID. There had been no crime scene photos taken of this uh, <clears throat> as uh, Vicky was still alive when the paramedics came in and the, the husband had untied her to some degree and she was swept away before there was, wasn't quite a crime scene, right? So the fact that these Polaroids existed meant that definitely the killer had taken them. The Eagle quickly ran his story, sharing with the public that BTK had made contact. BTK was back. Raiders swelled with pride and self-importance. He was high off of the attention. He took to preparing more packages that he'd leave around Wichita. On May 4th of 2004, Cake, K-A-K-E, TV, received an envelope from Bill Thomas Kilman. Inside was a complex word puzzle. Investigators soon figured it out, but the results were convoluted and confusing, just like Raider's thinking. When Raider was finally arrested, investigators asked him for help in deciphering one of the codes he had included with the package. Raider confidently sat down to show how the apparently simple code worked, but after a while it was clear that Raider couldn't figure out his own code. Like his spelling and grammar, Raider's puzzle-creating skills were high on motivation and low on skill. The same could be said for almost every murder he committed as well. Burn. <laughs> it's true, though. Jesus, the guy fucked up almost every single murder. He, would, he wouldn't last one murder in today's forensics and, and police forces. I mean, he's, he's one of the guys that taught a lot of these guys what to look for. But still, I mean, Raider was a bumbling fuck. Almost every single one of his, his, and I'm not just saying this just to attack him in some, uh, you know, trying to get back at him or whatever the fuck. Like, really, you, you heard what he's done here. He's, he's all over the place. It's a mess most of the time. Anyways, Raider uh, continues this mental jerk off. He sends a cereal box containing a doll hung from a pipe and a shout out to his murder of 11-year-old Josephina. The cereal box for serial killer get it. Raider claims that he was planning another murder when he finally slipped. He dropped a package into the bed of a pickup truck at a Home Depot and was caught on a security camera. Investigators would have never even known about this if Raider himself hadn't mentioned it in a future message. BTK wanted to know what had happened to the package he put in the bed of a pickup truck at a Home Depot. What had happened was that the vehicle had driven away, you fucking idiot, and the package had been thrown out because it looked like trash. Investigators were able to find a video of a man dropping a package into a pickup truck at the Home Depot. It was difficult to make out the man on the video, but the vehicle he had been driving in was identified as a Jeep Cherokee, a black Jeep Cherokee. I think it was black. In this package that later had to be dug out of the garbage was a question for investigators. If he, BTK, sent them a floppy disk, could it be traced? It also said, quote, be honest. <laughs> Although, uh, Raider thinks that he's developing a relationship with the cops at this time. He thinks that they, they respect him or something. So, be honest. Fuck. Raider had asked to be referred to as Rex in a classified ad with the answer. Investigators can't believe it. They quickly place an ad that reads, Rex, it will be okay. Two weeks later, on February 16th of 2005, KSAS TV in Wichita receive a purple floppy disk from BTK. Investigators go to work and have experts comb through the disk. 
it turns out they could have probably got, you know, like a, a 13 year old to figure out who had sent it in the property section of the document. They find that the file has been saved by someone named Dennis. They also find that the disc has been used at the Christ Lutheran church and the park city library. Finally, BTK has slipped. It just took a really tiny bit of technology to get involved in blammo. He handed himself over. They find that a Dennis Raider is president of the church. They surveil his home and soon observe a black Jeep Cherokee, Dennis Raider's son's vehicle, it turns out, parked in Raider's driveway. They manage to get some DNA from a pap smear test, of all things, Jesus, from Raider's daughter. Can't you just steal some trash or something? What the fuck? I guess they got a warrant to grab that pap smear, but come on, man. Watch somebody drinking out of a soda and grab the fucking can. Regardless, it's found that whoever the BTK killer is, they're directly related to Dennis Raider's daughter. Police pull Raider over as he heads home for lunch on February 25th, 2005, much like Vicki Wedgley's husband had been doing years previous. After initially pleading not guilty, Raider is faced with the monsoon of evidence dug up at his home and eventually pleads guilty and gives his account of each murder in court in front of the families. It's matter of fact and at times clear to anyone who's gotten to know Dennis, as we have here, that he's enjoying himself. Here's an example of his tone. This is a clip of Raider describing the murder of Nancy Fox, the murder he's most proud of. He thinks that she'll be his head maiden in the afterlife. Uh, or head sex slave or whatever the fuck. <clears throat> the sound quality's really bad. Some guy keeps coughing and sneezing throughout this entire confession. I think this clip is spared of that. This clip is interesting to me as Raider gets hung up on the color of the bindings. Hmm. He used on his victim, Nancy Fox, and uh, he's caught up on the color of the bindings after he casually shares that he strangled her to death with a belt. Here's that clip. All right. Did she come home? Yes, she did. What happened? I confronted her, uh, told her there I was a, uh, had a problem, sexual problems, that I would have to tie her up and have sex with her. Uh, she was uh, a little upset. We talked for a while. Uh, she smoked a cigarette uh, while, the, while we smoked a cigarette. I went through her purse, uh, identifying some stuff. And she finally said, uh, well, let's get this over with so I go call the police. I said, okay. And she said, can I go to the bathroom? I said, yes. Uh, she went to the bathroom. Came, and I told her when she came out to make sure she said that she was undressed. And when she came out, I uh, handcuffed her. And... Uh, I don't really remember whether sir. You handcuffed her? You had a pair of handcuffs? Yes, sir. What happened? Well, anyway, I had her, I handcuffed her, had her lay on the bed, and then I tied her feet. And then uh, I, I, I was also undressed to a certain degree. And then I got on top of her, and then I reached over, took either, either her feet were tied or not tied. Anyway, I took, I think I had a belt. I took the belt and then strangled her with a belt at that time. All right, after you had strangled her, what happened then? Okay. Uh, after I strangled her with the belt, I took the belt off and retied that with pantyhose real tight, uh, removed the handcuffs, and uh, tied those with, uh, with pantyhose. can't remember the colors right now. Uh, I think I maybe retied her feet. What they had not already, they were probably already tied, her feet were. Uh, and at that time, uh, uh, masturbated, sir. All right. Had you had sexual relations with her no, before? No, no. I told her I was, but I did not. So you masturbated, then what did you do? Uh, 
dressed and then went through the house, uh, took some of her personal items and kind of cleaned the house up, went through it, made checked everything, and then uh, left. And welcome back. That broadcast was brought to you from the center of the earth via walkie-talkie. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> I laugh at my own jokes a lot. The families eventually get to give their impact, uh, victim impact statements, which are, which are uh, terrible. They're heart-wrenching. Raider has destroyed worlds by committing these crimes. The court allows Raider to give a final statement as well. As he begins, most of the families exit the courtroom, which is awesome. Uh, like Raider's preparing himself and grabs his papers and he's <clears throat> families, uh, judge, uh, people of fucking Sedgwick County. And then the family starts, they just all walk out. Most of them just walk out of the courtroom. Raider uh, looks to the judge and asks if he should continue. The judge nods and Dennis Raider goes on to give a 25 minute long rambling speech. It's fucking ridiculous where he draws comparisons between himself and his victims saying things like Joe Jr. The nine year old that he, you know, wrapped fucking shit around his face forever and watched him buck off the bed and die of asphyxiation on the ground as he sat in a chair and got so excited that he bust the fucking chair. Uh, he says that him and Joe Jr. had a stuff in common. Like when he was a kid, he had a dog too. Every kid needs a dog. Just something you need to have. He says that Marine, uh, Marine Hedge liked the garden. I liked the garden. Vicky Wedgley played piano. I'm quite fond of piano. It's crazy. Once he's done with his cringe fest, he starts to try to set the record straight about minute details of his crimes. He talks about the struggle between him and Kevin Bright and how Kevin's hands were free when he shot him. And there was some discrepancy as to whether they were bound. He uh, rambles about topography and geology. He speaks of how he's been called a dog catcher and how this position was more than that. Closer to law enforcement than just plain dog catching. <laughs> he gives props to investigators, even though it took them a long time to finally catch him. He means it when he says this. He's not fucking with them. He's just an idiot. The camera pans to these investigators at this point, and there's a few grizzled cops sitting there chewing their lips and looking like they want to explode. The one guy at the front looks honestly like he's turning into the Incredible Hulk. Raider thanks his defense team in a way that sounds like a coach telling a group of T-ballers that they played a good game. I'm surprised that he didn't offer to take him out for pizza afterwards. It's crazy. It's patronizing and pretentious and don't even bother I mean watch it I I had to get up and take breaks as I watched it I can't believe that those people in the courtroom had to sit through that especially the families I, I'm, a, I'm amazed that someone just didn't yell something out you think that maybe someone would have had a few drinks before we went in there and just you know made a raspberry sound like like fucking do something to it break, break it up a little bit but they just let them talk for 25 minutes straight uh, Raider milks the camera. He personally thanks individuals who I'm sure don't appreciate being mentioned. There's uh, the camera pans to like one of the defense team, I think, and uh, she's looking up and she's trying to hang in there with it. And you see, at some point, she just drops her head and puts her hands over her face. It's just it's that fucking awkward and ridiculous. Uh, he reads a portion of a poem and a Bible verse. He apologizes to the victims' families. He rifles through papers. Uh, I'm surprised he doesn't pause to blow his nose as he's been doing throughout this entire thing. He stops, I think, three times, at least twice, to blow his nose. 
like takes his fucking time too, wiping at it and like crumbling up in a ball. And I think he asked someone to throw it out for him. It's crazy. Somebody get the hook for the love of God. Finally, he sits down much to everyone's relief. What a clueless self-serving dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> 